Good morning. Ooh, there. Yes, we are on uh, question 18, and I, I'd like to go over question 17 briefly, just so we see where this is coming from. Question 17 is, what is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. It's on the heels of this that we have this question this morning, and I will read the question, and then together we will respond. Will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? No. Every sin is against the sovereignty, holiness, and goodness of God, and against his righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and the life to come. Join me in prayer. Father, you have God gathered us here together this morning. And Lord, the most pressing question on earth is contemplated in this question. What is to be done with our disobedience or idolatry? It is not the disobedience of others that we are concerned about right now. Rather, it is our own sin. We have trusted in created things. We have made idols and worshipped them. And because of this, we are, every one of us, liable to your just judgment. You are not a softy that will just wave them away. You are the one perfectly fair being in all the universe. You are not mocked. We will reap what we sow. But Lord, I thank you that this is not the whole story. You are not only fair, for as Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. And so, for those of us in Christ, the most pressing question on earth has been settled, and it is settled in our favor. Because you are rich in mercy and have loved us with great love, we can pray with hope rather than fear with a hope not grounded on how well we are doing, but on how perfect Christ is in his life, death, resurrection, and ongoing intercession for us. There are so many burdens, fears, and problems we do have, but you have provided for our greatest need, and so we can bring these other needs to you with hope. Lord, this, this Sunday represents a new season for us, most students have gone. We are returning to one service, and the limitations due to the virus are ebbing away. But Lord, uh, we have experienced losses, and through this, and, and we grieve, and we pray for healing. Father, I thank you for the mercy and the, and the common grace that has allowed vaccines to be developed and administered. But Lord, we look and long for a time when all sickness and sin shall be no more. And though we can rejoice that uh, things are turning a corner here, we pray for the areas that are still struggling. Father, what we see in the news in places like India uh, breaks our hearts. Many are suffering and dying. I pray that you would have mercy on them. 
O Lord. Father, for our own nation, although the virus may be diminishing, there are any number of deeper pathologies that are flourishing for which no vaccine can be developed. Lord, you instruct us to pray for leaders, and so we do lift them up to you, local, regional, and federal. Lord, grant them wisdom that they may govern well, that we might live quiet and peaceable lives, and that your kingdom might increase. Father, for the students that have returned home, watch over them. May they seek and find you in the various places where you have sent them. Lord, I pray for our body here, as we establish new patterns, I, I pray that our love for you, your word, and one another would grow. May our relationships be centered on you so that we might fulfill the one another commands from your word. Father, for the missionaries we support who have uh, left here, and, and some who are here, uh, but Lord, who have made it their vocation to spread your word, protect them encourage them, nourish their souls, as well as their bodies. Now, as Kevin comes, open our ears that we might hear what you have for us. We ask this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God. If anyone says to you, oh, sorry, excuse me. All right, now when they first drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him, them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. <clears throat> Thanks, Courtney. Um, well, uh, since last week, I have taken a, taken a measure of abuse uh, for mispronouncing Nietzsche. There was some uh, awkward giggling and some pointing and loud laughing as I kept on stumbling over that. And I just want to confess, I think I got outside of my lane. Perhaps I was trying to be too highbrow, and I repent before you. So now... I believe it was Homer Simpson who once said, <laughs> I'm joking, I'll just get into the text. Triumphal entry, right? We're, we're a month late on it, uh, but here we go. Jesus riding into 
Jerusalem. Uh, you know, usually this is, this, uh, is, is taught the week before uh, Easter on Palm Sunday, uh, but, I, but I'm glad we have it now because I think it goes together with the last two weeks. So uh, the, the, the two main points I have are, are really simple, but I think they're very profound as well. And so uh, the, the two points are this. Number one, Jesus is king. Number two, Jesus is humble. So first, let's kind of meditate and hover over this idea that Jesus is king. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and as he does, they spread the cloaks out over the road before him. Uh, others spread out palm branches, the Palm Sunday. Um, and, and this might not seem very meaningful to us. It might seem a bit random, but, but Jesus is making a statement here, and the people around him are making a statement, and the statement is that Jesus is king. Um, and, and, and you could even say that, that this is in part of what got him killed. Because remember when he was crucified, Pilate put a sign over him. And what that sign say? It said, King of the Jews. So, so why does Jesus riding in on a donkey indicate that he is proclaiming himself to be king? Well, one reason for this is in Zechariah 9.9, where we read, Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the people of Israel would have an expectation that their future king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in verse 2, Jesus tells his disciples to go into, a vill into the village and to get a donkey for him. And this isn't random. He's intentional with this. And you have to imagine that his disciples would know the meaning of this and that they were probably looking at each other knowingly like this. He wants us to go get a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. They would have known this carried some, some weight to it. They probably thought he's, really, he's, he's about to kind of out himself as king. It's happening. And, and not only was Jesus proclaiming himself king in this way, but the people were affirming that he was king by, by laying out their cloaks in the, in the palm branches before him. And, and we see this happen at another time with a king, and it's Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9. Uh, a long story short with, with Jehu is that a prophet was sent to Jehu, and they, the prophet anointed him king, told him to take out the evil king Ahab. And so Jehu is pronounced king, and this is what we read in 2 Kings 9. 13, we read this, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is kings. So spreading out cloaks for the king to walk on, that's something that's done for kings. And riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is how the, the future king they were expecting and waiting for was going to enter Jerusalem. So it's impossible to overstate the meaning of, this would have for Jews in Jerusalem. And, and there's no misunderstanding about it. You know, it's not just kind of randomly, well, they got a donkey, so he rode that. What else is he going to ride? It was intentional. And then if it wasn't just intentional on Jesus' parts. The, the Jewish people there, they knew what was happening, and so they threw out their cloaks before him because that's what you do for kings. The people weren't just being hospitable. They were acknowledging that Jesus is king. They're saying the king is here. And in uh, Luke 19, 37 to 38, we, we read this. He says, as he was drawing near, this is the, the uh, similar passage, the same thing, the triumphal entry. 
Uh, he says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that, that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were saying, blessed is the king. And so the Pharisees see this and they think, this is not good. So they tell Jesus, you should rebuke your disciples. They're getting out of hand. And Jesus does not tell them to tone it down. He doesn't tell them to bring it down a notch. And you guys probably know what he says. He says this. He says, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones will cry out. There's no missing this, y'all. He is proclaiming himself king. It's happening. To use bad English, it can't not happen. So, so the Jews' view on this day, the, the, the way they viewed it, they, they viewed it very much, well, I, I should put it this way. The way we view this day is, is we almost only think about Jesus going in to, to, to die on Friday, to be crucified on Friday, and to resurrect on Sunday. This is, this is the beginning of the Holy Week as we see it. But that would not have been on the Jewish people's radar at this time. Because when we read this story, our whole expectation about what's unfolding here is the cross on Friday, the resurrection on Sunday. We can't not think that. But the Jewish people here, they're thinking Daniel 2. And y'all probably heard me talk about Daniel 2, the expectation that the people of Israel would have had for the future Messiah. Uh, a quick summary of Daniel chapter 2 is when they're in exile in Babylon. The king of Babylon, king, of Babylon, king Nebuchadnezzar, uh, has this dream about a statue. The statue has four parts, and these four parts represent four kingdoms. The, the four kingdoms are the, the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, and fourth was the Roman kingdom. And sometime during this fourth kingdom, that was the Roman kingdom, the kingdom of God would be established by the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. So the people of Israel, their expectation or their thinking is, we are under the fourth kingdom. There, Daniel 2, there was this dream with, with, uh, with King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel said, here's what's going to happen. There's been one, two, three. Now we're on the fourth kingdom that we're under as people of Israel. They're oppressing us and the Messiah is going to come in and the kingdom of God is going to be established. It's here. He's coming to Jerusalem. We've made it. And here comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem as king. He has done mighty works, miracles, healings, and signs. Now he sent for a donkey to ride into Jerusalem, and we're throwing out our cloaks for, for him. And the Pharisees are saying, tell him to tone it down. It says, we can't. It's happening. So, so the people begin shouting, Hosanna. And Hosanna literally means save, please. But, but also kind of came to mean like, like as if it, they were already saved, like salvation was here. It arrived. It'd be like in baseball, there's a pop fly, and then the, the outfielder's underneath it, and you say he's got it, like before he actually has it. So they're saying, we're here. We've made it. Salvation has arrived. Now, when we think about salvation, we think almost exclusively in terms of heaven and hell. But that was not what was primarily in the minds of the Jewish people when they were shouting, uh, Hosanna. What were they thinking about? They were thinking about freedom being saved from Roman oppression. 
And this is what made the death of Jesus so disorienting to them. It wasn't supposed to be like that. And after Jesus died, they might have thought that not even God can save us. I mean, we were expecting this, and maybe God couldn't pull it off. Maybe the Messiah couldn't do it. And you can see why they'd be so discouraged and so disoriented by this. And have you ever been mad at yourself for hoping about something? Like you got your hopes set for something, and then something just comes and it messes it up. And you're like, I shouldn't have even gotten my hopes up. I shouldn't have even done this. And this is how they would have been thinking about the king. The king's going to come. He's going to take out the Romans. And that is not what Jesus did. He just showed up, made a big fuss, and then he died. He, he got it like the rest of us have been getting it for the last hundred years. And so you need to know that the, expe- the expectation that they had, it, it wasn't wrong in substance as much as it was just wrong on timing. And here's what I mean. Turn to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is at the synagogue, and he's going to come up, he's going to read a passage of Scripture, and then he's going to sit down and say, this Scripture has been fulfilled. So Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It's actually going to be verse 18 and 19. Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19. Jesus reads this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After he read that, he sat down and he said, this scripture has been fulfilled today because the spirit of the Lord is on him to proclaim good news. But what's interesting for those of you who are super familiar with Isaiah 61 is you know there's a next line that he did not read. And therefore, that next line was not being fulfilled at the moment. And so when we read this, we think, yeah, this makes sense, but we don't think about, obviously, what's not read. So now turn to Isaiah 61, and I want us to pay attention to what is not read. So look at Isaiah 61, and we'll just look at verse 2, because in Luke chapter 4, verse 19 ends to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But there's a line that got left off in Isaiah 61, verse 2. And I'll start with the last part. It ends with, or the first part, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was included. Here's what's not included. And the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus did not say that the day of vengeance was being fulfilled. That day was not yet. The, the, the day of good news was already. It was here. It was fulfilled. But the day of vengeance would come later. What the people of Israel were rightly expecting the Messiah and the kingdom of God to do, that was coming later. This was the, the time of, of good news. The day of vengeance was not at hand. And you know what was at hand? The year of the Lord's favor. Terms of peace with God through the gospel. Salvation from God's judgment being offered to rebellious sinners. But there would be a day when that offer of peace will expire and the day of vengeance will be at hand. But we're living in a time of the Lord's favor. This season will end and the day of vengeance will be at hand and the time to find God's mercy will be no more. You will stand before God and face judgment. And so we would be wise to hear Isaiah's other words today 
It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So how do you find God and peace with God during the time of the Lord's favor? You believe the gospel, that Jesus died for sins. You repent from those sins. You turn away from them, and you get baptized as the response. Now, the repentance and the baptism doesn't save you. It's the, the response of believing the gospel. But the, the day of God's vengeance is not yet here. And rather than knowing Jesus in his vengeance, which that day will come, he can be known instead in his humility. So let me move to the second point, that Jesus is humble. So here, Jesus is riding into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. In Matthew 21, we see Zechariah 9, 9 quoted this way. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. So while Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, there are kingly implications, but there's also humbly, humble implications. We read that he comes to them humble and mounted on a donkey, not a war horse. Not long ago, uh, we had a horse named Cheers, a big, glorious horse. Uh, felt kind of like a tough guy cowboy when I would ride on him. Uh, now, we have a miniature pony named Smalls. I have not gotten on Smalls and don't intend to. I don't think it's a good look for me. <laughs> Nobody's going to get on Smalls and feel like a tough guy. And so there's just this sense where the animal they ride coming up has meaning. And there was meaning to Jesus riding up on a donkey, humble. Hey, terms of peace are being offered. He's not coming up on a war horse. You know, imagine the president showing up, not in a fleet of Suburbans or limos or whatever, but instead on a, on a Vespa or, or a scooter. I'm thinking Lloyd Christmas and Dumb and Dumber. Not a good look for the, for the leader of the free world, right? But we need to see the remarkable humility of Jesus riding up on a donkey. It's no small thing. Even though there's kingly implications, there's also humble implication here. And look, the, the better we see the humility of Jesus on, on the donkey, the more glorious we'll see Jesus on the white horse that he will ride. Everybody turn to Revelation chapter 19, 11 uh, through 16. Jesus is king. Jesus is humble. He rides on a donkey. He will ride another horse on another day, the day of vengeance. There's another horse for the day of vengeance. It's a war horse, and we get it described in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, 
He has a name written King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Same one who's riding a donkey, humble, is coming later on the day of vengeance of our God on a white horse making war. Here in this path, in our text today, Jesus is humble on a donkey. There will be a day when we see him as a warrior king on a white horse, clothes dipped in blood, armies of heaven behind him, striking down the nations, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. But not on this day in Jerusalem. This is not the day of vengeance. This is the day where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is making a way for peace. When we see Jesus humble on a donkey, we don't need to forget that he's also the one who will ride the white war horse. And when we think of Jesus on the white war horse, we need to remember that he was the one who rode the donkey, making terms of peace. Understanding each will enhance the other. And this is part of the excellencies of Christ, that he is both the God of peace in a glorious way. He is also the God of vengeance in a glorious way. And there is no compromise to either one. This is part of the excellencies of our God. And, and, and most of us probably lean one way or the other when we think about God or when we think about Jesus. Maybe we see him as intense God of judgment or we see him as gracious God of peace. And the only error would be to see one to the neglect of the other. The glory of God is, is finding him as he truly is with, with, all the, with all the paradoxes that exist inside our God. He is loving. He is hating. He makes peace and he makes war. He is holy. He is kind. He forgives. He takes vengeance. He is the lion and the lamb. While we're in Revelation, turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 through 6. In Revelation, you know, John has the, the vision uh, of, of heaven, and, and, he, and, uh, and we see this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Someone said to John, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. When someone says to behold something, they mean look, look at the lion of the tribe of, Jesus, of Judah. And so when John looks, what does he see? The lion, right? No, he doesn't see the lion. What does he see? He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so in Jesus, we see a combination of traits that we usually would consider mutually exclusive. Uh, in in a, a sermon on Revelation chapter 5, Jonathan Edwards said this about the, the seemingly contradicting traits of Jesus. It says, A lion excels in strength and in majesty of his appearance and voice. A lamb excels in meekness and is sacrificed for human clothing and food. But Jesus Christ is both. Because the diverse excellencies of both lion and lamb are wonderfully met in him. Indeed, there is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such truly diverse excellencies as otherwise would be utterly incompatible in the same subject. There do meet in Christ infinite highness and infinite accessibility, infinite justice 
yet infinite grace, infinite glory, yet infinite humility, infinite majesty, infinite transcendent meekness, absolute sovereignty, yet perfect submission, infinite all-sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. He is a lion. He is a lamb. He's a rock. He's a pearl. He's a mighty captain. He's a tender lover. He's a fragile flower. He's a mighty tree of life. That is what our God is like. We can't just put him in a box and say he's one thing and not another. Most of the heresies throughout Christian history have been rooted in the inability to sort out the paradoxes of who Jesus is. For example, one of the main heresies in the early church was either Jesus is God and not man, or that he's man and not God. And the truth is that he is fully God and fully man. And we see this done to the gospel too, right? Like where God is all about grace and obedience, and obedience doesn't really matter. It's all about grace. Obedience is no big deal. And the worst thing you can be is legalistic. Don't you ever be legalistic because it's all about grace. Or the other error is obedience is the lens through which we should see everything. The Bible is an instruction book on how to live. And all this talk of grace, be careful about talking about grace. Otherwise, people might not obey like they should. And all this talk of grace in the gospel is a slippery slope to an undisciplined life and godlessness. But when you look at Jesus riding into Jerusalem, you should remember that this is the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah entering Zion. And when you read about Jesus riding on the white horse making war, you should remember that he was the lamb who was slain. Now, let me back up a little bit and and consider uh, Mark's gospel and who it was written to. I, I said many weeks ago, that, uh, that this was the, the, the first, the original audience were the, the persecuted Christians in Rome. Now, how might this help them? How might it help them to know that their God is both lion and lamb? And how might this help them to endure? You know, perhaps it was good for them to know that the path that they were on, the path that they were suffering, it was no different from their king's path. Jesus isn't asking them to do anything that he hasn't already done. And more than that, the suffering builds up a weight of glory that is to come. It's actually adding to their glory. As Paul said, their suffering is not worth comparing to the weight of glory that awaits them. And perhaps they might know that their best moments in this life are not going to be when they have serene seas, great personal success or comfort, But their best times in this life might come when they join the lamb who was slain and they suffer. Because they know, and I'm reaching back the last two weeks, they know that honor in this world is totally backwards. Y'all know that, right? Honor in this world is totally backwards. And maybe if they see Jesus riding humbly in, The one who could ride in on the white war horse comes in humble on a donkey, the lamb to be slain. Maybe that'll help them get in their bones that the first will be last and the last first. Like I said, this is what we were talking about the last two weeks. The rich man from two weeks ago, he was at a disadvantage because he was all lion and no lamb. He had a lot of wealth, didn't want to walk away from it. James and John missed it last week because they were also all lion and no lamb. 
They were mesmerized with the idea of power and honor. And so can we forsake the place of honor and rather seek out to be last, to be the servant of all, knowing that now is the time for patient endurance and suffering and that our priority should be sacrificial service, not honor, respect, or recognition. And how might that change the perspective of, the, of those suffering in Rome to understand Jesus this way? And how might that change your perspective on your life, on your children's life, knowing that we're not here to somehow capture the good life, but to love and serve our God, preferably with no recognition, lest our motives become tainted and we can't tell if we're serving man or God. So may God help us to seek not a boastful war horse to ride through life on, but instead a humble donkey to ride, to be of little or no account other than to be in service of the King of Kings, the Lion and the Lamb. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now thankful for our King, our humble King who rides in on a donkey with terms of peace, it's our same king who will return on a war horse making war. Thank you that you did not come in vengeance, but came for terms of peace, that we might seek you and find you during the, the year of your favor. Help us to cling to you in that. Help us to point others to that, that they might find you in mercy and not in vengeance. And Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.